thing on? Can you hear me? Hooray. <laughs> well, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark LaLiberty, and joining me today is... Corey Tolerant Person Knockreiner. I've heard that at least three times at this conference. That's true, but you're also surrounded by a lot of short people here this week. Sorry, Sean. <laughs> so, we have a very special episode this week uh, for three big reasons. First off, this is the first of a three-part series where Corey and I are going to go travel the world and try and get a view of the challenges and opportunities that managed service providers and managed security service providers are facing all around the world. Number two, we are recording this with a live audience, again, coming to you from WatchGuard's Apogee Partner Conference. Thank you. Yet again, it's not just me hiding out in my office alone all day. It's it's nice. usually how it is, you and me hiding out alone in our office. Exactly. And then number three, of course, is because we are joined by two experts in their fields for uh, managed service providers and MSSPs. We've got Neil Holm, founder and CEO of Business Impact Technology, and then Kevin Willett, partner and CEO of the recently crowned WatchGuard Partner of the Year for North America, Veris Corporation. Thanks. Neil, Kevin, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> So we'll go ahead. Uh, we've got a few questions to ask to Neil and Kevin. Before we hop in, though, maybe a quick intro for yourselves, and I think Corey will have a question to dig a bit deeper as well. Uh, Kevin, you want to start with you? Sure. I'm Kevin Willett, CEO of Veris Corporation. We've been around for over 20 years, and we've been a WatchGuard partner uh, since our inception. We really focused on the co-managed space for the mid-market um, environments that are mostly out of the upper Midwest region. Great, Neil? Neil Holm, um, founder and CEO of Impact Business Technology. You were so close. Um, we're based in Connecticut. We're uh, an MSP, MSSP. We focus um, customers with a, a regulatory burden. Uh, so SEC regulated, uh, FINRA regulated, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, you name it. You're used to compliance. I am used yes. to compliance. The fun's done. Mm -hmm. So follow-up question, it's kind of our, our tradition to ask all our guests on the 443 what we call the hacker origin story. Sometimes we have security researchers, so that can mean either what got, when did you get interested in security or, if, or IT? You, when what, you what got arrested. You to this? Good. Sure, so um, in middle school we had a uh, computer lab. Uh, at the time, so I'm going to date myself, we had um, Acorn computers in England. Um, and we had a very permissive uh, teacher. So I discovered a way to make a program run and loop and then remap the keyboard so uh, the break command didn't work. Uh, that is awesome. Yeah. It's similar to one. Kevin? Yeah, w with us, it was um, really coming, or for myself, getting involved with um, delivering ISP circuits back in the early 2000s and uh, folks trying to tie together multiple sites and uh, do it more securely with the different VPNs and, and using the WatchGuard technology even back then. So it was uh, very exciting. Cool. And by the way, don't worry about aging yourself. I started with the Radio Shack Trash 80 and a 300 baud modem. The heck which is, is that? Probably why he calls me Pop Pop Corey all yeah. the time. <laughs> Interesting. Thank you both. Good. I think we're going to have a good mix up here. So. With that, like, let's go ahead and jump right in. Yeah. And uh, for the folks in the room here, you saw Corey's presentation just a second ago. As he started with compliance being a big part of security these days, and also in our hopes of getting a view, again, around the world, uh, right now starting in the Americas, 
Compliance is a very big topic. So we've chatted about it on the podcast recently. Uh, mentioned the White House cybersecurity strategy just came out. One section in that, it's 3.3, I think, if you want to look it up, is all about shifting the burden of security to the vendors. And I don't, well, I guess I do want to speak for Corey. I do that pretty often. Uh, we're basically for that. We feel like if you're doing security right, then it's no big sweat and it will help raise the level overall around the world. But that's our view from the vendor side. And so I wanted to pick Neil and Kevin, your brains on from the organizations responsible for deploying this technology, like what are your thoughts on the national cybersecurity strategy and just what the compliance and regulation landscape looks like right now? in the security space. I guess, Neil, if you want to start? Sure. Um, so, I mean, that, that's a, such a wide question, but I mean, <laughs> it, if we talk about the, the, the compliance space right now, uh, it is ramping up heavily, uh, be it insurance compliance, be it regulatory compliance, um, and even with the regulatory compliance on larger companies, they're now pushing this down on their smaller vendors, so almost everybody has to step up in some kind of way. So we all need to be familiar with it. We all need to be able to respond to it. Um, but then if you switch over to the, uh, the question about software uh, responsibility, um, I'm all for that too. If we read the terms of service, you know, that thing you scroll and click through, um, the, the software vendors pass all responsibility onto you, the user. And that's for things like your RMM, which is the single biggest gateway into your customers' networks the RMM vendor absolves themselves of all responsibility. Uh, that is frightening. Good thing that they've never had an issue with any of oh, that. Oh, no. Before. Before. Yeah. <laughs> Once or twice. But I, I agree. It, it's, um, it's, it's interesting to see how that's going to come down through the manufacturers. It's, it's a little bit concerning when we get into the partner space as to where the liability is going to be at the manufacturer space versus the actual MSP, MSSP, and other partner community. So it'll be interesting to see how that works because a lot of that kind of contradicts a lot of the um, cybersecurity insurance uh, pieces as well. Yeah, yeah. If you're a managed service, I mean, I, your customer wants you to take liability, and obviously that can be dangerous for you. But I do think the product, I, it seems, they do say products and, and services, so it could be more than products and software. But uh, I do think they're really focused on the vulnerabilities. So many companies out there that, you know, every company has vulnerabilities, Microsoft, Apple, whoever, but you can tell the ones that handle it right versus the ones that were just negligent. So we do think it's actually smart to, mm -hmm. if companies aren't doing the right thing, light a little fire to get back. Because it. it makes sense. Like if you're the purchaser of a technology, like it's tough for you to know how to perfectly secure every single device. I mean, hopefully you know decently well, but like all the holes that could potentially be in it, that is, it's your problem and your customer's problem, not necessarily the manufacturer's problem. So I, I like this kind of focus on it. From our perspective, like game on, like we're ready to go. Yeah, uh, we've already got it. Good job. Exactly. Yeah. Already have a mature program, so we're going to be in a much better spot than others that, you know, maybe they were just trying to get something out the door as quickly as possible, and security was yeah. much of an afterthought. I think cars are a great analogy, right? Because uh, imagine if cars, yeah, we're liable if we crash the car, but imagine if you bought a car and you had to go buy a seatbelt and you had to go, you know, do make sure that crashing into a wall wouldn't crumple the car. Uh, I do think companies have to at least build the amount of car protections that are just default with the car nowadays when we buy it into their products as well. Yeah, 
Do you think that there's any, uh, Neil or Kevin, any places that we're going to see more regulation in the short term? Like, I think in IoT or smart cars, maybe? Definitely. You look at the smart cars, you look at the IoT, you get into spaces that are uncontrolled and, and wide open. You know, we saw that with uh, everybody uh, shifting to remote workforce and a lot of folks just going, we're not ready, open up the holes in the firewall and then let the attackers in. That sounds like a great strategy, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Neil? Well, the other part of the problem is um, with, with, with IoT, um, it's being deployed everywhere. Homes, businesses, labs, uh, and, and the, the, the pervasive nature of this is incredibly scary. And a lot of these things are built on a very, very basic model. The, the vendor, security is an afterthought. They don't know or care where this is being deployed. Yeah. And there's OT that you find in business spaces, but I think to your point, if it's everywhere, you don't realize that your users have wearables that are all IoT and they're bringing them when they come to the office or whatever, for all you know, they can connect them to your network. So it's a big problem. Do you guys have any thoughts or do you hear from your customers on privacy? You know, a lot of purists want to separate privacy and security. They're two different things, but I think they're interrelated as far as social engineering. And privacy seems to be a big concern around the world. Uh, do customers, are they concerned with how you guys manage or handle their data when, when you're a trusted partner? Definitely. You know, and they're getting more and more aware of that every day. Yeah. I think one of the biggest problems is most customers don't know where their data is. Yeah. Um, so sure, they're bothered in concept by privacy, but they don't know how to, how to figure it out, how to find it. Absolutely. Uh, and then security will be the, the tool to keep you private. Yep. That's the only way that they're related. The data itself is where it all starts. It's definitely our concern as a CIO. We have a lot of tools that help us find our SaaS apps, but the beauty of SaaS is also its downfall. It's so easy to, to find a SaaS app that any department can go out and use to do something very cool and beneficial to the business, but then they probably have to put some of the corporate data into that app too. And often IT in the CISO office don't know of that unless they have a very good third-party risk management program that has processes that catch when people purchase new apps. So yep. that kind of concept of shadow IT, of not even knowing where your data is, is definitely huge. I think I've got a good idea for like a government-sponsored program that might be able to help with that. Uh, the NSA should offer a service of here's where all oh, your yeah, data is. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because they already yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> there we go, problem solved. <laughs> hey, can you send me that text message I sent to my wife exactly. yesterday? Exactly, accidentally deleted it. I'm sure you have a copy, thank you. <laughs> so let's move on to a different uh, subject. You know, talking about the 3CX supply chain attack. Uh, a great example of, of where uh, vendor security, you know, is a big deal. It's, 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 we have to understand what our vendors are doing with our data and products. So, you know, what do you think about vendor security? How do you go about validating and making sure that the vendors you work with, or is it a concept that you're having now? And maybe a, a follow-up, are your customers starting to ask you about your security before they do business with you? And I'll start with Kevin. Yeah, they definitely are. You know, we're going in a lot more in depth with those different uh, questions. Um, you know, validating, you know, it's good to have a trusted uh, partner like WatchGuard um, to be able to uh, know that the validation process was taken care of. We really leverage um, a, a few uh, different uh, organizations and we trust that they're going through the process. So um, a lot more detail in there for sure. 
Do you have any follow-up thoughts, Neil? On that? Yeah, so our, our customers are starting to ask us about those kind of uh, compliance features. So we opted to go with a, a SOC 2 certification. Oh, fantastic, um, so you got one. Uh, SOC 2 type 1, uh -huh. so we've got to step it up a little bit. Um, but what that's done is it's actually enabled us to um, open more doors. So now we can lead in with the fact that we are differentiated by having a SOC 2 or yeah. an ISO 27001, which is probably where we're going to have to end up. Yeah. Um, and it, it just makes those conversations a lot easier. Yeah, and I think it's a competitive opportunity. I mean, we talk about this compliance sometimes feels like a burden when you're first starting it. But if you're someone that can get to a mature program very quickly, now you have a selling point, a competitive selling point you can use against others. Talking about that, you know, something WatchGuard does as well. As you all know, we're ISO 2701 certified for all our WatchGuard cloud stuff. And it's something we take seriously and audit all the time. And we show on our WatchGuard Trust Center, if you want to learn more about WatchGuard security, SOC 2 Type 1, SOC 2 Type 2, ISO 2701. Is there one that's better than the other one your customers are asking for, or as long as you have one, you're okay? Any thoughts on that? They're not necessarily asking. A lot of them aren't asking us specifically when they do. Um, you know, it's definitely good to work with the partners that, that um, in facilities and manufacturers that have that. And hopefully that uh, by the vendor, if you work with WatchGuard, hopefully you can show them if they do ask you about certification, mm -hmm. you can kind of piggyback on the ISO that we have as well. Do you have any thoughts on that, Neil? Yeah, so as, as our customers being asked by their larger uh, Fortune 500 customers um, to, to prove compliance, we're piggybacking or proxying our certification through to say, we fully manage their IT department or their, their IT environment. Therefore, you can accept our certification. It doesn't always work, but it does make things a little bit easier. When it does, it must be a huge value for customers because you know the auditing, it would be expensive for them to do it on their own and yeah. time consuming. So a great value to your customers. I'd also ask you, how are you starting to look at vendors like us? When you do pick new partners, maybe not always vendors, but business partners, what kind of validation are you guys doing? Very similar, you know, going through and, and asking those questions. You know, yeah. years ago, maybe we didn't, right? And so that's getting a lot more important as we as we go through things and we look at how are they actually architecting their platforms? Are they secure? Are they doing following their processes? Cool, cool. And speaking of the questions and the t different ways of vendor validation, one pet peeve I have, and this is Pop Pop Corey getting on his soapbox. This box. is a pet peeve you have ranted about like I, know, I think I at least a dozen it. times. I'm the one. Me and Maria are the ones that have to answer all these questionnaires. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, do you with SOC Type One? You've probably done vendor validation before, do you think there is a, a, a good way as more and more companies that are less mature in third-party risk management start doing it? Uh, is there a better way to do it that's that you know, or are there burdensome ways I, I, that happen? I think so. Well, there are certainly burdensome ways some happen. There's bad ways to do this, yeah. which is just give everybody a full SIG uh, questionnaire, which Absolutely. is thousands of questions. Yes. I know you've filled these out. Okay, well, yes, uh, thousand and twenty-four for one customer. With no, with no concept of um, appropriateness. My worry is when they sell an Excel spreadsheet with a thousand and twenty-four questions, and it's usually not their CISO sending it to some right. business person. Are they even going to look at the answers? Are they grading it? And if they are, how are they going to act on it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And, and, and hopefully they have some actual, like there are third-party risk management systems out there that will kind of help automate questionnaires, but more importantly, allow you to do checks for SOC certification or ISO, and it will totally change what questions you ask that, yeah. that customer. Yeah, or that. So, so, so there are certainly some good ways to do it. Yeah. Uh, and if you do a little bit of recon up front, yeah. you can learn a little bit about the customer, learn about their risk profile, and then tailor your TPRM Absolutely. to, to to be a little more suitable. Having said that, you should ask every question that you do want to know that's not covered, so be, yeah. feel free to ask what you want. I will ask one thing, is there a red flag, like as you're looking at vendors, is there a red flag of a, that you wouldn't work with a partner, a vendor, that, that was the result of a security questionnaire? I would say um, a, a, a breach would yeah. be a red flag. Once you dig into the breach, find out how it happened, it tells you a lot about their inner workings, like 3CX. Yeah, for sure. Um, but they also showed up on the initial recon. Yeah. They had a very poor score on, on the basic security checks. So it does sound like the risk scoring, like the security metrics, risk recon, is something you look at as part it, of it's, the vendor it's the first validation. Step. Mm -hmm. Yeah, gotcha. and that guides us as to how deep we'll go into, into the follow-up. Fantastic. Kevin, do you think like the, uh, so Piling up on what Neil just said, yeah. when it comes to a breach, is it more like, uh, what are your thoughts on whether it's you know the response to the breach or like how it happened or what's some like key pieces you would take out of that if you're doing an analysis? Definitely. So when there is a breach, you know we look at how is that um, communicated to the community, how how is that communicated to the customers, what's being taken, what actions are being taken. Um, and we value, we take a look at how they're doing that, and we focus a lot on that because whether or not they did get breached or they will be breached, yeah, a lot of it is what you do with it once it happens. Too. I kind of agree with that. Yep. Although I, I do see like the vulnerabilities versus a remember a breach is slightly different than just a, a vulnerability in a product. Yes. But either way, I, I, there's good companies that have had breaches. As a CISO, I know there's no perfect protection, so I would probably think about how long ago it happened but what you said is drill into the details. When you learn how they handled the breach, you can tell if they were negligent and that's why it happened, right. or if they actually, it was just sophisticated and they did the right thing. Mm -hmm. So moving on to the next topic though, uh, this one, cyber insurance has become very big in our space. Like I remember it's over the last three years, I've been doing a lot of like going out to smaller partner events or smaller conferences. It used to be uh, the speaking slots, like whatever one was talking about cyber insurance, there was like three people in there to go watch it. And then this last year when I went out to go, it was like three people outside of it and everyone else was in those talk tracks to learn about, you know, how they can set themselves up for better chances of being covered, what they can do to uh, align with the new strong requirements coming down from cyber insurance. Like the landscape for cyber insurance is just completely blown up in the past few years. I think mostly because what Corey said in his presentation a little bit earlier today, they lost all their money over the past few years because of some poor choices. But with that change, it seems to be driving like cybersecurity just adoption across the board because in order to get insured now, you have to have strong cybersecurity practices. Uh, so Neil, I guess for you, what are your thoughts on like cyber insurance as a driving factor for requirements driving cybersecurity adoption? Any pros or potentially cons to it? I think in general it has been good for us. It has driven a lot of business our way. Um, and the things that they're mandating are good basic protections. You must have MFA, no kidding. You must have good air gap backups, uh, yeah. So it's not that they're making us do 
um, anything extra yet. Uh, I think all of the questionnaires that we're filling out now will drive the next round of mandates once they learn who gets breached having got these protections in place. So more is coming. We haven't seen the end of, of the maturity of this, this market. Yeah. But for now, it, it's not been a bad problem. Yeah, and I'll let Kevin answer, but to your point with like, now they're asking, do you have MFA? It's even beyond that now. It's, are you using MFA? And like, how do you have it deployed? Is it deployed everywhere? And if you suffer a incident, they are gonna confirm that you were actually correct in that before they pay out any potential uh, payment. Well, it's the only way they make money, right? Is exactly. by not paying. Yes. Yeah, de definitely. Uh, we follow on Neil. It's, it's driven a lot of business. So a lot of people will come and say, we want MFA or we want cyber uh, uh, insurance, right? And we go through and depending on that customer, whether they've been a customer a long time or if they're a prospect and you start looking at things and there's, you know that there's holes, it's, hey, why don't we, we need to get to here before you pay this insurance policy because if you don't do that or if you don't fill it out right, the chances of getting actual payment on that are pretty slim. Yeah, and when it comes to insurance for like premiums, as an example, uh, piggybacking on the car analogy, like if I drive just a you know beatbox car worth $2,000 or something, my premiums are gonna be quite a bit lower than if I drive my red Ferrari around in like the state of Florida, as an example. And in the cybersecurity space and the service provider space, like there's different risk profiles and different um, threat opportunities for different types of organizations too in different verticals. Service providers are, as we're seeing, a very highly targeted organization these days because you have the keys to the kingdom to a whole bunch of potential customers. Do you think that um, because of that, we'll see different, not just premiums, but even requirements around cybersecurity for service providers? Like verticalized like ones, yeah. a security yeah. vendor at MSSP having different higher security. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's possible. I mean, I, I actually see some regulatory action coming to this industry, and that's probably going to be either driven by insurance or, you know, insurance will piggyback on that. I think that's yeah. that's definitely coming. Yeah, and looking at the more current uh, applications that are coming our way to look at, they are asking a lot more in-depth questions, um, whether it's security backups, you know, how impactful is it if the business is unavailable due to um, an issue? Yeah, it's good. Circling back to what Kevin said, by the way, I do really like, I, I hate, I, I support customers buying cybersecurity insurance as part of their strategy. I want them, even as a vendor that sells the security, my irritation was, and what I, I heard from you is the ones that I'm not going to buy security, I'm just going to buy the insurance part. And the beauty, I think, of the new insurance model is they're not letting you do, they want you, cybersecurity insurance, yeah. wants you to have the security before they're going to give you either. So customers will no longer get away with just buying one or the other. It'd be kind of a combined situation and they'll get the best price if they have both. I'm right. not going to brush my teeth. I'm just going to get dental insurance. That's, <laughs> that's what they do in the UK, right? I guess I can't say that in Carol, you, No, you cannot. <laughs> so we've talked about how organizations around the world are starting to take cybersecurity more seriously thanks to things like cybersecurity insurance. And so more and more customers are probably starting to realize that they need stronger cybersecurity. But one of the things I talked about is the cybersecurity skills gap. So I guess my question is, do you see that as an opportunity or a challenge? Uh, you know, the fact that is the cybersecurity skills gap affecting service providers trying to find people? Or is it more driving business because you are the, they want to outsource now? 
And uh, I'll start with Kevin, I guess. Yeah, I think there, that gap is apparent, right? And, you know, working with different um, uh, vendors and partners that are out there, we're asking to do for them to do more, right? Yeah. And uh, that's that's apparent, and that works out pretty well for for us. But there is a gap, and you know there is an opportunity for sure. Yeah. And if I add a little to the question for you, Neil, too, uh, it, it gets to services and themes we've talked about, like managed services, SOC as a service, MDR. How is that changing? You know, that is it increasing your business? Is that why? more MSPs are starting to go towards those services? Yeah, I think so, because the for, for a corporation, the skills gap is very difficult to, to close. Yeah. And you might need to spend you know, 150,000 on a security ops guy who won't be fully utilized. Yeah. Or you could spend significantly less with a MSSP and get a much broader base of skills, coverage, technologies. It, it's a fairly easy decision for a company to make once they get used to this idea of outsourcing. And that yeah. doesn't work for everybody. One of the reasons I do promote it and sell it too is I think you also get a scale of experience because you're not just outsourcing your security to one person that's taking care of you. You're outsourcing it to an MSSP that has many customers and that means many experiences. Your IR team deals with not just one company, but the stuff happening in lots of companies and that type of real experience of a broad range of cybersecurity incidents just makes you a better incident response yeah, team indeed. in SOC in general. Uh, so you both work for two very successful organizations and I understand you probably don't want to give up the secret sauce of like how you got there, but if you were to give advice to like an MSP looking to make the jump to a managed security service provider or even like a, a bar value-added reseller looking to get into the actual managed services game, like what are some recommendations you might pitch their way? Like should they go and try and build a SOC from the ground up to start offering security services? Should they leverage like an MDR platform? Uh, maybe something in the middle, anything along the way? Yeah. You know, if, if you haven't built that out now, it, in my opinion, we would leverage the vendor community for whether it's the MDR, the XDR, all the different platforms that we're used to and discussing here, right? Yeah. Um, but if you have one that's going, I look back to, you know, when it used to be hosting servers and then it was a cloud and then, you know, data center services and, you know, now it's, you know, every it's files are everywhere, right? And so if you didn't get in before, it's challenging to start now, and it might be a little bit too late or too costly, but you know, you might have a different take on that. I don't know, so I know Jim's back there and he'll smile when I say this, but our mantra has always been, how hard could it be? <sighs> and I, I, I tell a story when I bring in new employees, and I, I tell them about John Wayne. When uh, early days in his Hollywood career, uh, he goes for a screen test for a, a Western, and he, he, he nails it. And the casting director and the movie director say, Mr. Wayne, you have the job. Oh, you know how to ride, yeah? <laughs> and he goes off and gets riding lessons. <laughs> That's how we've got to where we are today. It's, yeah. it's just, just try it, build it, use it on yourself. Be and CEO. listen to the customer. They tell you what they want next. You, you know how to write, and you're, you think, okay, I'm going to learn, learn how to write. Fantastic. Uh, so another question then. Uh, so those that have heard live events, uh, heard the live event, just heard Corey's quick presentation over his view of the cyber threat landscape, some of the key trends that we're seeing, targeting small, mid-sized businesses, MSPs, MSSPs. 
Uh, we're trying to keep this, you know, fairly high level, but if you want to get into the weeds, that's cool too. Uh, the question though is, is there any like specific threat or type of threat that's really keeping you up at night, uh, whether it be because of you or the customers that you manage or anything like that? Kevin, we can start with you. You know, when we get into the IoT space and, and the wearables and all the different things that we don't have control over, um, you know, we can, you know, set up the best network. We've got uh, people coming in and, and going places and, and being remote. So keeping on top of that, you know, is really going to be a continued challenge and uh, making sure people are um, protected. I'm with you on that. Like IoT is one that, so I turned on like the network discovery feature on my, my Firebox I've got at home the other day for the first time in forever. Uh, and holy cow, there is more stuff on my networks now than there was probably three years ago when I last took a look. Like everything from, you know, watches and you know, light bulbs and things like that. And I, I don't know how secure those things are. Yes, they're all on their own little IoT network for the most part, but that doesn't always work, at least on a home network. Yeah. And our office network, it's an even bigger challenge too, as you've got to accommodate people with, uh, man, we had that fancy schmancy smart water cooler back yeah. in WatchGuard 2 that someone allegedly installed Minecraft on. Yeah. Uh, like these are all yeah. potential avenues for attack or a, a bastion for an attacker. Within I bet that smart mirror you talk, told me about once that you purchased showed up on the network scan that gives you daily affirmations every day. I remember you telling me all about that cool mirror. <laughs> exactly. Neil? Yeah, for us, it's the third party risk, um, especially for things like our RMM. Um, yesterday or the day before, I was talking to Guillermo about how maybe EPDR can give us those guide rails for, for our RMM and only let the RMM run within a particular cha channel so that it cannot be an avenue for attack. But then things like 3CX, it's out there on desktops, full system permissions, and we approve the, the upgrade. Yeah. You know, how, how are we to... Tell it's legitimate. It's yeah. signed by that provider. It's something yeah. you use. Yeah. So the the ability for us to trust um, a third party that we intentionally let in yeah. is scary. Yeah. I did be tough. Like RMM specifically is like that's an insanely tough nut to crack because you need it to have the access and power it has in order to. Do yeah. job. I would say MFA, if you don't have MFA on your RMM, and by the way, WatchGuard has systems manager for our endpoint products, which is really just, it's, it's, it's an endpoint system manager, does a lot of the capabilities of an RMM. Definitely add multi-factor to it. Mandatory. Yeah. And also don't expose it to the internet if you remember. Yeah, that, that'd be the, smart. Uh, previous breaches involving yeah. RMM manufacturers. Or, or yeah, the firewalls. I don't know why you'd put a firewall management interface on the internet. Or you're still like bitter about internet. events from years ago. <laughs> <laughs> totally understandable. Though. I have a twist on this threat question. So we are more sophisticated, mature security folks that understand the industry. But as far as security, what do your customers come with? as why they need your services. Is there a particular threat they talk about most or is it a compliance issue? Okay, Kevin. Yeah. yeah, a lot of them are, are trying to upgrade their security, right? Yeah. And their insurance, right? So that's a big piece of it. Um, you know, looking at how the workforce has changed and, and spread out now. Remote. And remote. So uh, those are some really big things. We've always worked really uh, in organizations that have multi-locations and now you've got people everywhere, right? Yeah. So it's always been big that way. So customers are asking about compliance and about new kind of infrastructure and, and technologies like remote work. Mm -hmm. Neil? Yeah, so we've, we've always built with a uh, security mindset, mm -hmm. uh, whether the customers wanted it or not. 
because I know I am responsible for it. Yeah. Uh, we have very long-term contracts with our customers. My very first customer is still my customer today. Oh, wow. And it, it, so we've always had that approach. The, the long-term value of that customer is, is much, much higher than the short-term cost of me doing the job right first time. Yeah. So we've always led with trying to do this as best we can, as secure as we can, whether they wanted it or not. That makes sense. I mean, even if you're more MSP focused and you're delivering lots of IT services, one thing that could make people upset about your IT services is a security incident. So yeah. by building security just as part of your normal IT services, yeah. it helps them trust you throughout their lifetime. Fantastic. On the topic of, uh, of threats and using another, well, I guess it is no longer a buzzword. Corey is correct. Artificial intelligence is a real thing. Maybe we should call it machine learning. Machine, yeah. There's some AI out there, but most is machine learning. I mean, learning. it literally caused an engineer from Google to go freak out and say that it was sentient. So if we've reached that point. That's true. Like, it's Elon Musk Elon. is scared of it, so. Yeah, correct. Well, Elon Musk is scared of a lot of things. So that's probably. Apparently not, not Dogecoin. Exactly. He should be. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Or the SEC. So if you had asked me about like the threat of artificial intelligence on security like three years ago, I would have pointed to like some of these older generative AI programs that we've seen where like Corey and I talked about on the podcast, I think probably three and a half years ago now, making fun of like a movie script that one of these AI things spat out, or it was just like grammatic nonsense for the entirety of the thing. It was funny, but it was not hilarious. for the right reasons. Yeah, and so if you'd asked me then like, what's the threat of AI, it's like nothing. Like, it's not going to do anything. You'll keep your job for sure. Exactly. But now, like, even in just the past few months, like, the doors have been blown off, it feels yeah. like. Yeah. So approaching the, the chat GPT gorilla in the room, as kind of the segue into just AI in general, like, what are your concerns about AI and the cyber threat landscape uh, going forward? Neil, start? I think the, the ability to spot uh, phishing emails, spear phishing emails, will be very difficult. You know, they're 100% they're legitimate, they're DKIM signed, you know, because that's how quickly they can stand up this kind of infrastructure. But we still, we're still able to, to spot the, the errors because they're written by someone in North Korea. Now, we've lost that ability too. They look perfectly legitimate. And if there's a, if there's a small amount of data for them to train on based on the company language that this company uses, they get even better. I can imagine a future not very far away where like Kali Linux comes with a generative AI oh, model hanging out baked sure. into the operating system. Plug in a few documents you've found from open source threat intelligence gathering and now you can go mimic anyone in the company. Yep. That doesn't sound great. Kevin? I think a lot of it goes around awareness and um, increasing awareness for the end users um, that are within their organization and training and getting them to understand that this stuff is out there and this is real and this is a real threat, right? It is getting better and it is getting more real of, a, of an issue. Yeah, you can't just rely on spotting grammar mistakes in emails or punctuation and things like that. They are going to look like Prakash Penjwani wrote an email saying to, I don't know, Probably not even wire money because they would catch that as a red flag, but something really simple could be potentially their foot in the door. Yep. So let's, let's flip the switch, though, and go silver lining. I mean, obviously, it's hard not to think about dystopian uses of technology, but I personally, the reason I'm in this business is I love technology. I think it can help save mankind based on how we use it as a humanity in a society. How are you guys considering using AI or machine learning or picking vendors to, to use it the other way to help secure, automate, uh, improve what you guys do for your customers? 
You know, we're just starting to get into that and we're looking forward, you know, there is definitely needs there. We're looking also for the, the partners that we work with to um, bring forward solutions to help um, protect awesome. against that. And that's, we definitely in WatchGuard want to lead and use it in lots of our malware engines and, and our automation coming sure. in the future. Mm -hmm. How about you, Neil? Any thoughts there? So um, for ourselves, we're, we're like Kevin, we're just getting started. But I met a partner uh, a few weeks back who has integrated ChatGPT into his ticketing system, yeah. whereby it will ingest the ticket, summarize it, send an email to the customer, and then suggest next troubleshooting steps to the technician. Uh, it's, that's that's a huge game changer. And it mm -hmm. costs about a nickel per ticket. Well, wow. And I, we've all seen the web-based automated chat that's not a human, and sometimes it's been irritating, but my understanding is those are getting so getting powerful that they're actually amazing. Yep. And you mentioned like crafting phishing emails earlier. That is the obvious use case for like the malicious use of one of these engines. But on the flip side, I wonder if like they can help us spot phishing emails as well, too. Absolutely. Like They potentially understand the human language way more than I do, because uh, I've not studied 50 million Word documents blasted all over the internet. It's the guy that edits his ISR report. I actually, your your human language is really good. Thank you. So maybe some of our other writers that need ChatGPT. I write good. Thank you. Uh, but <laughs> I write so, gooder. Exactly. But I could see like this type of data mo machine learning model being used on the defensive side as well too to potentially spot like patterns that we wouldn't have seen Absolutely. that make that email or that text message or phone call stand out. Yeah, or to give it a sentiment score. Like, what, what is it asking you to do? And is this unusual? And, and is it out of character for the people that you're talking to? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way it can take a information about us to mimic our voice, it can also be smart enough to notice the tiny little digital differences that might help us detect the faked voice too. Which brings me to, by the way, for all of the audience and the folks out in the crowd, you should start looking at vendors and what you're going to do about AI and ML because I personally think security is, is going to go to Skynet. It's going to be adversarial machine learning against adversarial machine learning where yeah good guys start writing something that does machine learning to catch something new, bad guys write something to learn what their machine learning does, changes it, and then that's just going to cycle over and over at the speed of a machine. Yeah. So you, you should consider investing in AI to, to keep up with the, how threats will scale. Corey just mentioned that he thinks that technology is going to save humanity or something. I'm on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Like, <laughs> I'm now convinced that the Terminator was a documentary and not necessarily just a fictional movie. Just be nice to the robots and then maybe they'll take care of us and we'll be, we'll be he healthy pets. Like if I could have the life my dog has, I'd be living pretty well. I, for one, welcome our new robot overlords. <laughs> so to transition, I, I'm curious, there's a couple terms that we talked a lot about here. Uh, what are your hot takes on things like, uh, let's, let's start with zero trust. Zero mm -hmm. trust is such a loaded term because Sometimes vendors talk about it in point products, but it really is a wide paradigm that you can apply to network, to end user, to data access, to applications. How, how are you guys doing on your zero trust? And this time I'll skip the Neil and go to Kevin. Any thoughts on yeah, zero so you, trust? Yeah, you and I spoke about this yesterday. Yeah. Uh, you know, how, how do you define zero trust? Uh, it, it's not that easy. A lot of vendors will, will jump on this and say, hey, we have a zero trust product. No, you don't. Yeah. You, you fill a gap within zero trust, One but portion of nobody is doing the, the whole spectrum of zero trust. 
it's up to the integrators like us, the customers that actually operate it, and yeah. the vendors that we use. It's, it's, a, it's a very ethereal thing to try and get your hands around. Absolutely. I do think there's standouts. I don't know if you guys agree. Uh, have you heard about things like zero trust network access? Are, are your customers starting Never to talk about that kind of stuff, Kevin? Or? You know, they're not necessarily bringing Which that up today, right? But yeah. we know that we need to put in solutions that handle that. Absolutely. Right? But to Neil's point, that's a tiny, that, that's just one remote part of zero trust. So yeah. as a CISO, we want to move more towards that paradigm. And that can be network segmentation, that can be uh, considering where your data is and putting different controls that are identity-based. It really is a whale of a topic, but I, I guess the only way to deal with it is small bites of the whale. Well, you and I said we were going to write a maturity model for zero trust, right? That's, that's the next step? <sighs> I hope you are good for writing a 100-page <laughs> NIST document, because I think that's where, that's where, that's where it's going to end up, yeah. And to that point, like, how are you guys starting your zero trust journey for your customers or even within your own organization? Like, are there any baby steps you can start along the way? Anything you're looking at specifically first or like a grander vision of where you're trying to end up? You know, you really just got to look at people need to be secure wherever, right? And as there's more that's out there, we can't trust anything hardly, right? And, you know, the, the products that the uh, WatchGuard's rolling forward are really attractive. Yeah. Awesome. Well, actually, let me end before. I'd love to open the, the questions to the audience if someone can help us with the mic to see if anyone wants to ask uh, some questions just about any of the topics we talked about. But before I do, a perfectly selfish question. You know, you are WatchGuard partners now. What can we continue to do to delight you, to delight the MSSP and the MSB community? Or is there anything at top of mind that, that we can continue to do or add to, to make sure we keep the MSPs effective? How happy? much time do we have? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> What's your top one? Give me, give me your top general high-level one. Um, you know, when we look at, um, there's a lot, right? Yeah. Uh, it's hard to pick the top one, but, um, you know, just giving the more security regardless where you are picking up from the passport uh, platform and being able to build upon that to mobile remote mobile, the, you know. the devices that aren't always under network control yes fantastic yeah, for us it, it would be um aggregation uh so you know your 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 xdr your threat sync is is starting to creep into a, a lot of these products we need to step outside of that and go to the big cloud platforms too because yes. the 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 data that they create it should be correlated with the data that we have. So that's that lovely, have. by the way. We've talked a lot about XDR, which is us bringing our platform together to help SOX manage security in a more costly manner by having a lot of our capabilities. But I send, essentially what it sounds like you're saying is open SOC integrations. Yes. You and your customers work with many technologies. So the faster, obviously, I'm sure you want us to make your life easier with our platform of services but making sure that we extend it to all the types of data that can also add to that threat intelligence Absolutely. from other things your customers use. Yep. Fantastic. Yeah, definitely. So I think we've got time for a few questions from the audience. If anyone has a, a hot topic that you want to pick anyone up here's brain on, want to throw a hard ball, soft ball, any kind of ball. I don't see any hands. I also can't see anything. I see one hand up front. here. Oh, there's one way at the front. Make Michelle run for it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a, a good discussion from the panel so far. Um, a lot of it's centered around chat GPT, generative AI, and um, I kind of wanted to tie that back into something Corey talked about in his presentation 
with the um, privacy concerns because one of the risks I've seen is um, when you use it for good, for instance, like people don't consider where that data goes um, and whether they may be, you know, providing someone with uh, proprietary data in a system that they don't have any control over. And I want to see what your comments were on that. I have thoughts on that, but let's ask the guests first. Do you have thoughts on the, the data we give many companies out there? Some that they might need to provide good services to us, but some that can be misused? Well, you guys definitely go a lot deeper into that, but it is definitely a, a big issue. People are thinking less and less of where their data actually lives and resides and what the ramifications of, of at using a free app. It's not free. Yeah. No. Yeah, so the, the only way a large language model like that gets better is by learning from what you give it. Big data is what AI is based on. So back to the MSP I mentioned earlier that's feeding his tickets in there. Yeah. That's incredibly scary because we put stuff in tickets that yeah. we don't want other people to know. Is it going to learn from that? And is some of that data going to leak out somewhere? That's Absolutely. not been very clearly defined yet. That is, a, I think, a massive risk that some organizations don't think about, that like the data you plug into this, it, like, it could potentially be used or spat out in a response elsewhere. And I yeah. think even in like personal use as well, too, like we see, uh, I just listened to an interview with a Google CEO where one of the topics was like, what are the guardrails you have around this? Because the reality is the overwhelming majority of my life is in Google at this point. They've got yeah. my email. We, we've lost all our PII. I mean, the basic PII is already oh, out it, there. It's out there. Yeah. yeah. I will say like my personal anecdote, and this is where Mark might have me. I try to be optimistic that technology will save the world, but I'm sharing a little bit about me that I may not totally believe that. DNA testing. Like, I'm a nerd like everyone else. I would love to send my DNA somewhere and see all about my history. I will not do that. And that's a weird balance between will technology save the world? Because to your point, think of if doctors have all of our DNA, all of our genetic code, they, they really could do amazing things for humanity. We could have medicines that were literally genetically made for us. Uh, they can learn about disease. The value of that big data is huge. But the risk of that big data is also huge. And the deciding factor there, it's not the technology, it's not the data, it's the stewards, it's the people that use it, it's, society, it's us. Are we going to decide to use it for good or, and, and, and profit off of delivering good services to people or are we going to try to do more? I will give you the bad case that I hate is ISPs. I pay an ISP to give me internet service. I give them good money to give me internet service. I don't mind giving them whatever they, data they need to do that, but then they go sell my telephone data and my ping data and my browsing history to everybody. Wait, they do? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that wasn't part, I, I, yes, it was part of the deal because I didn't read that EULA in terms of service that basically sure. said that every picture I put on Facebook is their marketing now. But that, it's not, it's not the deal we really thought we signed up for. And we were talking about how big zero trust is. Carla loves to point out that data minimization is a zero trust concept. As businesses, data is valuable to me as a business because I can provide you with services if you share certain data. But why should I gather data I'm not going to use? A lot of businesses do that because they're thinking there might be a way I can monetize that in the future, which I don't think is a, a good way to think. 
rather than thinking about the inherent risk. Now they have data that they don't even need. If they get breached, that's even more liability from the customers. So it's an excellent question. I, I, I think there's plenty of great uses for big data, but we as a society need to come together and say there has to be controls and we have to make sure they're using it for good. And for instance, I don't trust the DNA testing companies yet, which is why I have never had a DNA test just to, to learn you know, where I'm from. Yeah, the other part of uh, data minimization is if you get served with an e-discovery request, it is yeah. extraordinarily expensive to produce 20 euros worth of email history. Ex absolutely. Uh, and so, yes, there is some value to keep it. I can look up how much I sold a firewall to a customer 15 years ago, minimal yeah. value. The cost, though, of producing that and having it reviewed by an attorney and then handed over to the third party that's really expensive. And that's not to say you shouldn't collect it because there is a lot of value you can add. I, I do think like for instance, marketing leads, understanding about the customer helps us better serve. Some data models I do love is like Netflix's uh, algorithm. It probably costs me too much money for Amazon too, but when they do tell you products that are you might like, often they're right. They're so good. it's uh, you have to have this balance of how am I using this data? Is it really a value for me and my customer going forward? And I think if we do that, we'll, we'll solve it. I personally still believe most of humanity is good. It's just some bad actors, but we'll, we'll see. I'm not convinced. <laughs> uh, great question. Any other questions out there? Anyone got a hand up? No? Everyone's probably really hungry for lunch. That's what we're holding all these people from, right? <laughs> OK. Well. I think with that, thank you, Kevin and Neil, both for hopping up here. We appreciate the insight that you gave really us. really do. No problem. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for helping protect all the customers out there that use your services and our products as well. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone else. Thank oh. you. Oh.